Hello, church. Happy Sunday. If you're joining us for the first time, my name is Greg. I'm one of the pastors, and we are in the midst of a series on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus's inaugural sermon found in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5 through 7. And we are going to be in Matthew 5, 21 through 26 today. The title of our series is What About? And then each week we add what we're going to try and aim at in that passage. So today is What About My anger. And so today I'd just like to remind you that we're going to finish our day-to-day with um, uh, taking communion together. And don't worry if you don't have the elements out there. We're going to take a two-minute reflection time. So if you, at the end of the sermon, don't have your elements handy, uh, you can you can get them then. What about my anger? Well, I want to say that anger is an old foe of mine. I have struggled with anger for most of my life. It's mostly directed at me, inward. Uh, Sometimes I can get a little sharp, I can get a little pushy, and it's usually the result of me being uh, frustrated or tired or or driving. I'm I'm kind of an intense driver sometimes. But anyway, sometimes the way that I felt about it, and maybe you can relate to this, is sometimes it feels like I am a pinball machine. And the, the ball of anger is just ricocheting off my soul. And so the reason I'm telling you this is because I am speaking you, to you today as a fellow traveler in this area of anger. And here's what I want to lean into today. Number one, anger is a good thing. God gets angry. And so should we. And that, that might sound contradictory if you've read the passage or when we read the passage, but we'll try to consider this idea of anger in the larger context. Additionally, in our passage, passage today, I want to say that this passage is one of the premier relational passages in the whole Bible. And so keep that in mind as we go through it. So as I mentioned, Matthew 5 verses 21 to 26. Before we actually read it, I want to provide some context in case you missed last week or the week before. You've never been in the Sermon on the Mount before. Uh, People who teach other people how to preach and teach the Bible, they have a saying. And the saying is, context is king. In other words, we've got to understand or try to understand what, for instance, Jesus was trying to say to the people that were in front of him. And so last week I pointed out that the key word in the whole sermon is the word righteousness. Uh, we talked about being the, the thesis statement that, that our righteousness, verse 20, our righteousness needs to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees in order to get us into heaven. And last week we talked about, and you can well imagine, the people that were sitting there were probably just absolutely flabbergasted that he said that, probably had a hard time even uh, believing that, but it's a a shocking, shocking statement. And so to try to put that succinctly, there, there are two overlapping views of righteousness that I think it's important for us to try and understand. The most common way that people see righteousness is the effect of our conversion. At conversion, we receive the complete and total righteousness of Jesus. 
The theological term is justification. Isaiah likens justification to a robe of righteousness. He says that in chapter 61, verse 10. If you could think about that, a, a robe of righteousness, it's, it's Jesus's robe, it's his righteousness, and he places it around us. If you have more of an accountant's mindset, you could think of it as a, a full and total reconciling of the books. All your bills are paid. The mortgage is paid off and you have enough in reserve to last you the, the rest of your life. So those are two kind of views of righteousness, a robe and a complete and total reconciliation. The other overlapping way to view righteousness is our response to God's gift of justification to us. There's a longing, there's a desire, there's a hunger, there's a thirsting that wants to honor God, that wants to please God, that wants to worship God, that wants to pursue God. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is mainly addressing, our response to God's gracious gift of salvation that wants to please and worship and honor God. What Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount is that our spiritual vitality and what gets us into heaven will come from a spiritual hunger for God. Are you hungry for God? That's a big question. I remember years ago for a sermon or a series, I went out to one of the malls near our home and I had a survey, had a clipboard, had a survey and just randomly pick people and ask them, are you hungry for God? And I, I was amazed at almost everybody, maybe 95% of the people, whether they're in church or not, whatever, almost everyone I talked to agreed that they were hungry for God. And I think, I think there's a hunger in the human heart and in the human soul. And what we're talking about is how to get there from here. So this is, this is the primary focus of Jesus' statement about our righteousness. And that the fact that it needs to be greater than the scribes and the Pharisees to get us into heaven. This, this idea, this longing, it's not about external righteousness. It's, it's more about heart longing for God. And so if you were with us last weekend, you might remember that I said, if, if you don't have this hunger for God, if that's not in your heart, if it doesn't reside in your heart, if you don't have some kind of hunger for God residentially in your heart, you're probably not a Christian. And so that's, that's good for us to think about and to weigh and to consider in our lives. And so beginning with our passage today, Jesus reinterprets six different Old Testament law commandments and addresses the need for heart change. Remember that the Pharisees, the scribes, folks on external, Jesus is internal. And so with all that said, I'd like to read Matthew 5, 21 through 26. And we've been standing, but like I said last week, if I stand, you won't be able to see me. But I would love it if you stood uh, in your room um, with your family, your friends, your spouse um, for, the, for the reading of God's word. So I will start Matthew 5, verse 21. Jesus is speaking. You have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, 
If you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. So if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. When you are on your way to court with your adversary, settle your difference quickly. Otherwise, your accuser may hand you over to the judge, who will hand you over to an officer, and who and you will be thrown into prison. And if this if that happens, you surely won't be free again until you have paid every last penny. Sounds pretty harsh. I don't think it is, but let's pray. Kind Father, I, I'd like to pray that you would be the primary teacher here. That you would speak to everyone who's listening today, whether it's through worship song or through something I say or something you just say and speak to a heart. And so that's our hope. And we offer you this time and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's four things that I want you to know about anger and how to redeem it. And we'll just throw them up here so that you can see them. Uh, the power of anger, the potential of anger, the problem of anger, and the prescription for healing uh, inappropriate anger. And I'm not sure that these um, uh, uh, points are mine. I found them in my notes. Uh, they're alliterated. Uh, they sound a little Rick Warnish to me, if you know who Rick Warren is. Uh, but that said, I, I'm not sure where I came up with those, but uh, I just wanted to let you know that. So we're going to walk through those. I, I throw these things out. This is where we're headed. And then let's go back and look at them one at a time. So the power of anger. Anger has been referred to as the dynamite of the soul. It can have really devastating consequences in our lives, inappropriate, unhealthy anger. It can wreak havoc to our bodies. Proverbs 14.30, a sound mind makes for a robust body, but runaway emotions corrode the bones. It's interesting, medical studies seem to affirm that that's true. It can have devastating consequences on our relationships. Hebrews 12.15, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. A root of bitterness, anger that just takes root and then defiles many. It can have devastating consequences in our capacity to make wise and intelligent decisions. Proverbs 14.29, the second part, part B. He who is quick-tempered exalts folly. And I've, I've heard that anger can actually become addictive. And it's usually masking deeper woundedness in our lives. That brings us to number two, the potential of anger. The Bible repeatedly speaks of God's anger. Another phrase we see scattered throughout the Bible is the wrath of God. 
a lot of people really struggle here because there's this fairly common perspective, especially among cultural critics of Christianity, uh, assuming that if, if God is love, God would never get angry. And here's the problem with that perspective. If you have a God who never gets angry, you can't have a God of love. Because if God never gets angry, God doesn't really love anything or anybody. If, if there is someone that you and I love, or you love, or I love, there's someone that we love, and that person is threatened, you will get angry. And you should get angry. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I mentioned him last week, uh, one of my favorite authors, a, a literary uh, mentor of mine. He passed away, pastored uh, in London for 30 years in the mid-20th century. But uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this so succinctly when he says this, our anger must only be against sin. That's how he wrapped up all this together. Our anger must only be against sin. Our own sin and the, and the sin, the pervasive sin that we see in, in the world around us. Sin of all kinds should make us angry. First and foremost, as I said, our own sin and then the sin in the world around us. This is what the second beatitude up in Matthew uh, uh, chapter 5, verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. This is what this is addressing. We say things like, I hate slothfulness. I hate abuse. I hate oppression and greed. We, we hate expressions of sinfulness. And, and God hates that too. He loves the world, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But he hates the world system, uh, the, the oppression the greed, the human trafficking. He hates all that. And we're invited to, we're called to hate it as well. Just a reminder here, Paul writes in Ephesians 4, 26, he says, be angry, but don't sin. So anger is a legit emotion. God gets angry. We should get angry. There's an inappropriate and an appropriate anger. In our passage today, in verse 22, it says this, if you are even angry with someone you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. I kind of chuckled, but that's because that is really, really convicting, isn't it? When's the last time you called somebody an idiot? I called myself an idiot maybe four or five times today. I don't know. And then I mentioned too, when I'm driving, I, I get a little... I'm looking ahead. Anyway, I won't go into that. Um, what Jesus is saying here, I don't want to make light of this because it's a pretty heavy passage, so forgive me. What Jesus is saying here is, is that we must separate the sin from the sinner. It, it'd be a, a little bit like you saying to yourself, you did something dumb. You, you'd say, oh, I'm an idiot. No, you're not. You did a stupid thing. You did a dumb thing. You did an idiotic thing, but that doesn't make you an idiot. But that's, there's a wider perspective. You're separating the sin and being angry at the sin, the pervasive sin, our own sin, uh, but loving the sinner in the same way that God loves sinners. 
And finally, I'd just like to point out that anger and wrath also contain longing. And I, I think people don't realize this. Um, God's wrath, or think of it this way, if, if your spouse or your kid does a really stupid thing, you get angry. And isn't part of that anger that you feel this kind of, this kind of longing for them to make better decisions where the part of our anger, part of our wrath, part of God's anger, part of our God's wrath is, is God's longing for us to choose him, to make better decisions, to, to be more in love and more desirous of the things of God. So that brings us to number three, the problem of anger, the problem of anger. And as most of you probably know, anger is a secondary emotion, not a primary emotion. So our anger can mask, it can disguise the primary emotion, emotions that kind of lurk beneath the surface. Frustration, grief, fear, offense. Uh, here's a crude uh, graphic that I came across uh, recently. Uh, anger iceberg. And so the anger is what people see, but what's going on below the surface, as you well know, this, this should make perfect sense to you. Humiliation, hurt, fear, rejection, frustration. Those are some primary emotions that give way to anger. And anger becomes a problem when it gets out of control, when it, when it hurts people emotionally and physically as well. An important key to understanding the problem of anger is for us to see anger as an opportunity to look deeper into the heart of God. Our anger can become a window through which we can discover and deal with the woundedness that we bring into our Christian experience. If we stop, take a moment and think about, now why am I, what's going on here? Uh, and if we, if we go there and begin to identify the primary emotions that this anger is giving way to, it will help us a lot. Another way to illustrate this, perhaps, is think about an engine light uh, on a car. And if you're driving along and the engine light, usually red, starts flashing, what it tells you is something's wrong and you need to check it out. If it goes red full blast, then just pull over and pull out your checkbook because it's, it's really bad at that point. But that's this, it's the same idea when you feel anger to take the time and consider the primary emotion that's going on in your life, in your heart. It's, it's a window into the heart of God. It's, it's a window into how God wants to bring continued healing into your life as well. When you feel anger, let's view it as an opportunity to explore what may be below the surface, what the anger might be masking in our soul. So the purpose of examining our emotions is not merely to better ourselves, but to reveal what separates us from God, what separates us from other people. And so as we move into, uh, conclusion, uh, move towards celebrating the Lord's Supper, I'd like to conclude with that last point, the prescription for healing 
our unrighteous anger. And I have two quick thoughts that come out of the text that we read there. Uh, if I were to condense verses 23 uh, to 26 into one single statement or one single thought, it would be that when reactive or contemptuous anger surfaces, deal with it quickly. That's what it's saying. Deal with it quickly. Again, Paul says in Ephesians 4.26, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Funny story, Linda and I, when we first got married, we took that literally. And I can remember a few, well, I don't think, maybe three. Linda's here, by the way, doing the PowerPoint. But, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it was probably 11 o'clock, but I'm feeling like it's two o'clock in the morning. And more often than not, it's, it's the wives who want to continue talking until it's finished. And then us guys, we're often, we're just kind of falling asleep. It's not like we're just tired. And so I, we, 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 um, we had some times where we're really, really late and it just got more and more and more frustrating. So what I would say to this about Paul's, do, do not let the sun go down in your anger. I would say, I'm not sure that's literal because I think you can get in more trouble if you try and do it at two in the morning than if you just went to sleep and, and tried to do it as soon as possible the next day. So that's just a little tip. Um, how to get through that. And then in verses 25 and 26 indicate that the, the, the proudful failure, the unwillingness to reconcile with people could result in a prison sentence. That's what the text tells us. And, and I believe this is true spiritually as well. It, it may be the prison of resentment. It may be the the prison of bitterness. Hebrews twelve fifteen again, root of bitterness spring up defiling many. Maybe the prison of fear, sadness, guilt, shame, envy, depression. There's all kinds of prisons that people get locked into. They're all very real prisons, and we could end up confined if we're not dealing with emotions that result in our unrighteous anger. There's a righteous anger, mad at sin. There's an unrighteous anger that does not want to resolve. Finally, I'd like to say, um, I put a blog post up and it's a questionnaire related to evaluating anger for people. And so I really like you to go to that uh, blog post if, if you're new to our church or haven't been to our website, communitycovenant.church, and the main page shows up, and then center right at the top, you'll see the word blog, just just uh, press that tab, and it'll take you to the blog, and then the, the, the top blog would be this, this anger evaluation questionnaire. And it might be good for spouses to take it together. If your kid's a little older, you could take that together um, and just walk through that and evaluate how much of a hold anger has on your life. It might be a little bit of, you might find out that, that anger is really a thing. Because if we don't deal with it, it's, it's, it, it'll kill us. It'll kill us. So the gospel tells us that Jesus absorbed our vitriol and our anger. And Jesus also absorbed the wrath and the anger of God.
on our behalf toward a proud and stiff-necked people. And because Jesus, Jesus did it for us, let's continue to be patient and kind with one another in his strength and in his power. That's the essence of the gospel, is that it's not about what we do or don't do. It's about what Jesus Christ has already done on our behalf. And that conversion moment, that justification where we, we receive the full righteousness of God. It's not our righteousness, it's his. And he gives it to us in the form of a robe or a complete reconciliation. So if you're in a place where you've never asked Christ, Jesus Christ, to come into your life and into your heart, I want to encourage you to do that. If you see that you've got this anger and you don't know how to deal with it and you've struggled with that, I encourage you to just surrender afresh to God. And then one of the things that you've probably seen on the on the broadcast today is, is that we want to be able to talk to people and pray for people. So if, if you want to talk, if you want to pray with someone, we have men call men, women call women, you can send an email to prayer at communitycovenant.church. And we also have a text number. You can you can text prayer to 508 508- Three three eight four eight zero six, and somebody would love to get back to you, talk to you, listen to you. We're not going to try and fix you. Uh, just going to listen and then pray for you if you'd like to be prayed for. And so, uh, this anger thing—it's important. It's really important that we get our eyes on this and and see what's up, what's going on in our life.